Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, so today we have an episode for you on a hot topic in shoulder arthroplasty. In particular, we're going to talk about stemmed and stemless humor components. And to discuss, I've invited two national experts. So first, from the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, we have Dr. John Sperling. Dr. Sperling, welcome to the podcast. Pete and Rachel, thanks so much for the opportunity to be here today with you. Oh, we're so happy to have you. And from um, Beaumont, Michigan, we have Dr. Michael Weider. Dr. Weider, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, uh, Rachel and Peter. I really appreciate the invitation. And uh, thanks to the ASCS for having me. I'm very uh, honored to be here. Okay, so let's let's start at the beginning with our go-to workhorse-style humoral component historically, which has been the stemmed component. So, Dr. Sperling, tell us what are the advantages of a stemmed humoral component? Well, there's no doubt there's a long track record of success with stemmed humoral components. So, if we look across the board, the rate of isolated humoral loosening has been extremely uncommon. So there's been a lot of evolution, obviously, from cemented to uncemented designs, and we've gone to shorter and shorter stems. And throughout all of this, thankfully, the rate of loosening has been uncommon. What are your thoughts, Dr. Weider? Anything to add? Well, it's certainly tried and true, and uh, it's, it's familiar to literally every surgeon. So that really goes a long way. Uh, it works in any situation, just about, except for, you know, a severe malunion of the proximal humerus. So straightforward. Primary cases do well with stemmed implants up to uh, the most complicated revisions. So uh, it's a very effective technique, and it has certainly withstood the test of time. So let's, let's move on to the – we've heard the good. Let's hear the bad. So, Dr. Wider, what – what are the disadvantages? What are the problems we've encountered with stem components? Well, there are some disadvantages. So uh, it is um, more invasive than a stemless implant. So you have to remove more bone. It does require uh, at least reaming, if not reaming and broaching the uh, proximal humerus and humeral shaft. Uh, so that uh, in a revision situation can lead to uh, diminished bone stock, which can complicate matters. Uh, it can create stress shielding, so, uh, you know, depending on the implant design and the sizing and the fixation, uh, you might see resorption of the proximal humerus from uh, stress shielding. Uh, and if it does fail for whatever reason, whether it's uh, loose, aseptic loosening, or uh, uh, simply malpositioned or infected, uh, the revisions can become pretty complicated. So, you know, you end up with a situation where you may be uh, not only compromised uh, in the proximal humerus region, but may have compromised bone stock well down into the shaft of the humerus, which uh, can require some pretty uh, heroic salvage techniques to uh, compensate for that. Anything you'd add, Dr. Sperling? What, what, what do we miss? What are some other downsides of a long stem humeral component? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I think Mike said it very well. I think the challenge, of course, is when we think about revision. There are some stem designs, fully porous coated uh, designs, 
some some with unusual geometries that can make removing them extraordinarily difficult and can really result in significant destruction of the humerus. We've also recognized that, at least I've seen in my practice, frankly, that humeral component malposition is not that uncommon at the time of revision, particularly uh, with freehand cuts. So when you have malposition components that with stems going down a significant length down the arm can make removal uh, difficult, uh, particularly in the setting also of uh, being cemented. So I think the last thing I would say about that, as Mike said very nicely, is stress yielding. As we've known now that there are some certain geometries of stems and perhaps some coatings of certain stems that have been associated with a higher rate of stress yielding and bone resorption, and that also can be concerning. You know, uh, I would add a, another disadvantage to the stemmed implant is the risk of an intraoperative fracture. So, you know, over the 20 plus years I've been in practice, I've seen the transition, you know, there were no stem or, or stemless or short stems back then. Everything was kind of the standard length stem, which was anywhere from 120 to 170 millimeters in length. And many stems, when I was in training and early in practice, were fully cemented. And uh, so we've seen the transition to um, cementless press fit stems, which in, in many respects is good. I mean, I think one of the most difficult revisions is trying to explant a well-fixed, fully cemented humeral prosthesis. I mean, you can literally uh, destroy the humerus trying to get the, a stem like that out. So with, with a, you know, cementless implants, there's a lot of advantages, particularly for um, revision. Um, but, uh, you know, it does have some disadvantages too with, with a, a tight press fit. You know, you want to put the implant in stable so you don't want it to be too loose, so you put it in tight. And if you do enough, you know, stem implants in a press fit fashion, it, at least once in a while, you're going to crack a humerus. So one of the disadvantages of a, of a stem is the risk of an intraoperative uh, humeral fracture. So before we move on to stemless, I wanted to chat real briefly about this issue the because on a you know like right now you know on the market there are mostly cementless components and in the united states we've moved largely towards cementless humor components i know there are other places specifically in europe where people are still largely cementing their primaries and i don't there's nothing wrong with that i think the registry data actually supports it would you have i want to ask both of you before we go on to stemless are there situations in which you still will both in a primary setting cement your humoral component so, Dr. Spilling, are there, do you have some primaries that are still cemented, and if so, who is who is that patient? Actually, in my practice, the answer is really none. I haven't cemented a uh, stem on a primary probably in 15 years. What I will tell you that we've learned with stems, and we learned from our hip and knee colleagues here at Mayo, the only time I cement now is I do a cement within cement technique on my revisions. So, what we'll do is take 122 stem that's cemented in there, and I'll cement in an 83-millimeter stem, a more narrow, shorter stem. So on the revision side, when we use stems, the goal is to go shorter and shorter, not longer and longer. So we have a lot of revisions here at Mayo that are interesting, where if we pull a 122 stem, I'll put a 55 or 83-millimeter stem in, and there's stem, air, pedestal. So we actually don't bypass that. And I think to Mike's point, we see a number of people that go longer on stems, and to try to put a straight stem in a curved bone, you can fracture it distally. And we've seen that quite a bit. So what we try to do, at least here at Mayo, 
is to go shorter and shorter, not longer and longer on the revision length stems, which is, a, which is a little bit different, but it can sure make your life a lot easier if you're gonna use a little narrow short stem on revisions. What about for you, Dr. White? Are there, are there any stems that you're primarily cementing right now? You know, uh, I've made it uh, a goal in my career to avoid cement as much as possible. So I quickly abandoned cementing when I got in practice. And, you know, I would kind of echo what John said. I can't think of a primary case that I've cemented in probably 20 years. Um, I, I do cement occasionally on revisions. And like John said, uh, oftentimes it's a shorter stem. You know, if, if I explant a cemented stem that's well fixed and not infected, and sometimes you can bang the stem out and leave the cement mantle behind, rather than, you know, chip out the cement mantle and spend a lot of time doing that. Uh, if it's not infected, I will cement a shorter stem into that old cement mantle. So I've done that a number of times, and that, you know, can turn what would otherwise be a pretty hairy revision into a pretty straightforward revision case. So that's probably the only time I cement something. Um, even on uh, reverses for fracture, I can't think of the last time I've cemented a, a stem in a, in a fracture setting either. Well, let's ask you both about stemless components. Tell us, what are the advantages? Dr. Sperling, let's start with you. Yeah, so I think for me, I think stemless implants for me, the big advantage is, is if there's an option and an opportunity to save uh, my patient's bone, I think it's, it's something reasonable to pursue. So one is bone preservation. I think the track record of success if you look at many of the IDE studies, I know Mike was a part of a very large one, the largest one. Um, I think that's been encouraging. I think it's frankly faster for me. I don't have to do all the circular reamers and brooches. Um, less blood loss. And I think a number of surgeons also say less pain because you're not violating the canal. So those are some of the reasons uh, for stemless. I think that it makes it a very attractive option in my practice. Dr. Weider, how about you? Any additional thoughts? And if not, what are the potential disadvantages of stemless components? Yeah, I, uh, in terms of the advantage, I think John hit on all the, the major points, but there are a couple other, you know, I would say that, you know, the risk of an intraoperative fracture, like I talked about just a couple minutes ago, is much, much less with a stemless. Certainly, there's no risk of a humeral shaft intraoperative iatrogenic fracture like you would with a press fit stem, so that's nice. Uh, there's also the less risk of, I think, stress shielding postoperatively, you know, because that bone is getting loaded differently than a stemmed implant that has fixation distally, you know, a diaphyseal fit, which is which is a pretty common mode of fixation for a lot of stems out there. So I think there's going to be uh, less stress shielding seen. You know, we're still early in the stemless experience, so we don't have any long-term data confirming that, but that's at least what we're seeing in the short term. I totally agree with Dr. Sperling that it is a faster surgery and less blood loss, and certainly the bone preservation is much greater. Uh, one final advantage is that there's no reliance on the uh, humeral canals, so you're really uh, free, I think, to do a better job replicating that patient's normal anatomy. So, you know, with a stemmed implant, that stem really can only go in one place, you know, down the canal. You know, with a stemless implant, it doesn't really matter what the relationship with the metaphysis and the canal is. So I think it's a little bit easier to really, you know, get the head positioned just right and replicate that patient's anatomy. And certainly in 
in a male union case, you know, if you have a proximal humeral male union or a male union uh, of the upper shaft, uh, a stemless is a very nice way to go. And you know, Rachel, then, it's interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. No, please go ahead. You know, it's interesting. I think you think of disadvantages. You know, it was, I'll just share with you. I remember when stemless first came out, what we were seeing, at least at Mayo Clinic and the patients that I saw, was not the problems associated with implant loosening. It was almost exclusively cuff failure. Interesting. And I, I think I started understanding it when I started doing more stemless myself. And the problem we kept seeing was the humerus is heart-shaped. So it's wider up top, more narrow below. And there's a tendency for surgeons to put the stemless implant a little high on the humeral face because that's the widest part because people want to avoid intraoperative fracture. But what was happening is we were seeing the humeral head then being placed too high with associated cuff failure. So I think the big thing for stemless that we've seen and I've seen in my practice is that if you do a stemless paying close attention how much and in the direction you dial the humeral head down in relation to the tuberosity is critical. So soft tissue at the end, we've all learned that the anatomical shoulder in the end is a soft tissue operation. And with stemless, you can get yourself in trouble by placing the implant a little too high on the humeral cut and not being cognizant of the cuff in relation to the tuberosity. This is something I want to really ask you guys about. Because you, so Dr. Wider, I mean, you brought up this, the advantage of stemless is that you're free to the canal. You know, the canal doesn't matter anymore. We can forget all those things we had to learn about posterior offset and medial offset and the canal doesn't matter who cares there's no it doesn't matter but i one thing i want to ask you both is for the lower volume surgeon or the trainee or someone who's maybe not as confident about their ability to replicate the anatomy as experts like you, both of you is there an advantage to having the canal is there an advantage to having the canal to help to guide you to make sure that whatever you're doing is not crazy so what are your thoughts on that i mean is the stainless a good implant for someone who doesn't do as many implants? What do you think, Dr. Sperling? So it's interesting. I think, again, I think since last October, I think I've done every anatomic, probably the last 90 anatomics I've done stemless, except one patient who wanted the identical side, the same implant. So I've used it. But I will tell you, uh, Pete, I, I always use an extra medullary cutting guide. So the way I do it is I use an extra medullary cutting guide, bar down the form, 30 degrees of retroversion, 135 inclination. I actually pin the extra medullary guide with two pins to the humeral shaft, and I make the initial cut. And then what I do is I make a secondary cut to adapt that to the patient's individual anatomy. But I never do a freehand cut, actually, because I think you can get lost. And we reviewed some series of people who made freehand cuts, and I think it can be hard, even in experienced hands. So I think you're right. Without the canal as a reference, I think it takes even more attention to detail to make sure that your cut is in the appropriate height, version, and inclination. And I'd love to hear Mike's experience because Mike probably has more experience with stemless implants than, than anyone I know. So I think, um, you know, to answer the question about the canal, I think it, we're going to see that it's really going to depend upon a surgeon's training. Because, like Dr. Sperling, I haven't done a stem anatomic, you know, in a long time, other than maybe in the last couple of years, one case or maybe two, where the bone was just so soft and metaphyseous, we had to use a short metaphysis and had to use a short stem instead of a stemless. But 
almost exclusively for my primary anatomic total shoulders that are stemless. So that's what the residents that we train at Beaumont are seeing. That's what our fellows that we train at Beaumont are seeing. And, you know, by the end of their training, they got a pretty good experience with primary stemless arthroplasty. So for, you know, somebody who trains like that, and I think there's other centers around besides Beaumont Mayo Clinic that provide that experience. Like we see more and more surgeons where that's, that's the way you do things. But for the surgeon who didn't get trained on stemless, uh, I think there are some advantages to using uh, the stem as a reference, particularly with the cutting guide. Uh, for an inexperienced surgeon or somebody who's just starting in stemless, I think using a cutting guide like Dr. Sperling suggested is a good idea. It is tricky to do a freehand cut. I personally do freehand cuts, but you know, for somebody who's new in practice or trying it for the first time, uh, I probably would recommend using the cutting guide. And then you can always take a second cut if you want to adjust it, as John said. One thing I see, you know, consistently with with poorly done stemless arthroplasties is a varus neck cut. Uh, so, you know, it's really important if you're going to do a freehand technique that you get the decent exposure, get all the osteophytes off so you can kind of define that native uh, anatomic neck and, you know, it's the old orthopedic adage, measure twice and cut once. Uh, really take your time and make sure you get it right because it's easy to mess it up. Yeah, I think that's the, I think what you both say about using the cutting guide is really good advice. We, um, we published that actually using my partner's patient, Dr. Robert Tajan, and compared to another surgeon that did, was not using a cutting guide because he's been using an IM cutting guide at a first sight. I, I have to admit, I was a little bit like, why are you using the intramedullary cutting guide? You're using a stemless arthroplasty. This is like the exact opposite of what I thought we were supposed to be doing. But it, it leads to a better reconstruction. Um, so I do think that's an important tip, it, an important tip you know, for surgeons. If you're going to make this transition to stemless, if you're making a freehand cut, consider going back to using a cutting guide, whether it's IM or EM or whatever, whatever cutting guide you're using um, to make sure that you feel a little more confident about the quality of reconstruction because it's so important with stemless. The cut is so much so important. Um, yeah, I think I think that's good advice. I think I think there's nothing wrong with once you get your get your skills down and get your experience, then transitioning to um, you know the freehand technique. But I think in the beginning, using a cutting guide is a good idea. So I think one thing I'd like to know, and I'm sure our listeners would like to know, for the standard primary total shoulder replacement case. Does it matter? Is it okay for surgeons to pick either stemless or stemmed humeral press, uh, humeral component? Should we be all doing, you know, a, a stemless? Because it seems like when you guys highlighted the advantages and disadvantages of both, it, it weighed in favor of stemless, if I heard correctly. Does it matter? Um, is it okay to pick either? Is one favorable for just the average primary arthroplasty case? Dr. Sperling, let's start with you. I think it's interesting, Rachel. You know, I think that over time that the advantages that we've seen have been published. So bone preservation, lower risk of intraoperative fracture, less blood loss, less pain. Um, I, I think stemless, you know, again, for me, is really preferable that way. The other thing I would say is the efficiency of the procedure. As a lot of us have transitioned to doing outpatient arthroplasty, and as Mike and I were talking about before the podcast, you know, we have a lot of traveling nurses now at Mayo. And having one pan with simpler instrumentation for stemless is also a nice feature. So we put all of that together with great radiographic data. So from I think that stemless is really 
I mean, it, it's time has come. And I think for me in my practice, it's become, uh, you know, the standard of what I do. There's nothing wrong with using a stem if that's what you're more comfortable with. It's just I've seen a number of advantages for stemless, very similar to what Mike uh, outlined earlier. Love to get Mike's thoughts. Yeah, good points, John. Uh, you know, I think there's absolutely no shame in using a stemmed implant if that's what a surgeon is comfortable with. Like, like we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, the results have been excellent. And, you know, we have results going back 50 years with stem tumoral components and low complication rates. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. Uh, you know, so it's all with what the surgeon's comfortable uh, with doing and what is going to lead to the best outcomes in that individual's hands. Uh, if you look at what's published on stemless implants, and now we've got, you know, there's quite a few studies, uh, you know, around the world, U.S. and in Europe, you know, started in Europe in, I think, 2004 and came to the U.S. about, you know, 2016 or so. A lot of published reports of stemless uh, anatomic shoulder arthroplasty, and we've got um, eight or so stemless reverse reports out of Europe. You look at the clinical outcomes, you know, despite all the advantages that we've talked about, you know, bone preservation and, and so on, at the end of the day, the clinical outcome is as good as stemmed implants. So it's, it's not inferior, but it's not a superior implant in terms of range of motion um, and radiographic complications like loosening or subsidence and uh, patient outcome measures. So there's like so there's nothing wrong with doing a stemmed implant if that's a surgeon's preference in my opinion. Let's talk a little bit about component removal. You know, every any component revisability is really critical. Have either of you removed many stemless components? How hard or easy were they to get out? Was there a lot of bone loss? Was there a big hole once you got it out? What do you think, Dr. Wider? So I have removed stemless implants. Uh, they are much easier to remove than a stemmed implant. I will say that. Uh, most stemless implants are uh, porous coated and really get outstanding ingrowth. So um, every one that I've taken out that's not loose has has had you know a, a high uh, percentage of bone ingrowth on the porous surface. Uh, you don't end up with a huge amount of bone loss. You know if you take your time. You know most of these implants are designed to be explantable. Uh, so they allow for, you know, a thin osteotome and, you know, curette or something like that to free up some of that uh, bone porous metal interface. So if you take your time, you can you can take it out without removing much bone. And if you're impatient like me and, you you know, you just kind of bang it out, you still end up with a situation where uh, it's not difficult to put in a short stem tumoral implant, um, you know, as the revision. Has that been your experience as well, Dr. Sperling? You know, it really has. I think that for me, I think the revision has definitely been easier. And um, I think it's refreshing. I mean, I have you know, some of the worst parts of my practice are removing, what, you know, cemented stems. And the ability to be able to revise an uncemented stemless implant is so much uh, better in that regard. So, I and I think you're not sacrificing in terms of fixation. You know, it's interesting. I just... As a segue to that, I would say, Pete, you know, a number of us are still like to do anatomic total shoulders in our practice and even in expanded ages. So last week I did a stemless anatomic in an 83-year-old woman. She had a great quality cuff, minimal glenoid bone loss, and you put a stemless implant in there, you get great fixation, and over time you realize 
that you can get great fixation with these types of implants and the durability that's been shown in the literature. So I think we've expanded even our indications on stemless now, perhaps of what they were a few years ago. And it sounds like Mike's experience has been similar to mine, that over 98% of the anatomics he's doing now are stemless, similar to myself. Now, both of you previously brought up stress shielding, and this is, I think, a super interesting topic. You know, there, historically, we've had problems, of course, with diaphyseal fixation stems, where you lose everything proximally. So I wanted to really, really compare to a more modern metaphyseal fixation stem. Do you think the earlier results show that stemless has less stress shielding than a metaphyseally fixated short stem? What do you think the evidence shows? Is this better or not? What do you think, Dr. Sperling? Yeah, I think so far the radiographic data looks looks very good. And I, I looked, tried to look through the literature a short time ago looking at it. And when you look at the radiographic studies on stemless implants in regard to stress shielding, I, I think they look good. There's some differences perhaps in different designs, but by and large, I think it's been uh, very encouraging. Mike, Mike, what are your thoughts? Um, so, you know, Question is a shorter metaphyseal fixation stem compared to a stemless. I, I think they both have very low rates of stress shield. I actually don't know which one is better. I think you know the long term we'll find out that the stemless is better. But we don't have a lot of good uh, data literature on metaphyseal fixation stems. I think we know pretty well that a diaphyseal fixation stem is is uh, at risk for stress shielding. The metaphyseal is certainly a better option, uh, but is it not as good or better than stemless? I guess I don't know the answer to that. I think they're both probably, you know, very good in terms of stress shielding. Let's talk a little bit about the subscap. When we go stemless, when you each go stemless, how do you manage the subscap? Let's start with you, Dr. Sperling. Yeah, so I, I do a tenotomy, but I do a little different technique. So the way I do it is I always tenodice the biceps high in the groove. So if you tenodice the biceps high in the groove, you leave the biceps within the bicipital sheaths. And then when you do your subscap repair, it allows for more robust subscap repair laterally. So I do a tenotomy, uh, hemi-total reverse. It's the same technique and it's the same type of repair. So tenotomy is what, what I prefer. Dr. Weider, how about you? How do you manage the subscap when you go stemless? So I guess this is one area where John and I differ. Uh, so I do a lesser tuberosity osteotomy on my anatomics, and I do it whether it's a stemmed or a stemless implant. Uh, my reverses, I'll do a tenotomy just because it's quick, quick and easy. And as you know, if the subscap doesn't heal, it doesn't heal well. It doesn't really impact function much. But certainly with an anatomic, it's critical. So I like uh, the LTO because of the bone-to-bone -bone healing. Uh, you have to be careful. You know, using a stemless implant can kind of complicate complicate an LTO. So you got to be careful to not take too much bone. You know, it's it's not that difficult to get too aggressive with, you know, your osteotome and, and go too deep or too broad. And then that can uh, potentially compromise fixation of a, of a stemless implant. So you got to, you know, really take a thin piece of the tuberosity. Um, I will use bone tunnels through the uh, base of the bicipital groove and then pass the sutures through the osteotomized neck of the humerus and then 
the implant I use has a, a the stemless implant has a collar with holes, so I'll pass the sutures through the holes of the implant so that um, I'm not relying solely on bone tunnels. Uh, it's kind of did the same thing with stemmed implants, right? Pass the sutures through bone tunnels and then around the stem of the implant uh, before we fully impacted it so that if we lost fixation of the bone tunnel, we'd still have sutures around the implant. So that's been my technique with stemless uh, humeral components for LTOs, and that's worked uh, quite well. Now, I wanted to follow up on the LTO because I think a lot of surgeons use this technique, but may may fall into that more aggressive category, and that obviously won't fly with a stemless. Any any technical pearls you can offer, especially our young listeners, when performing an LTO with a stemless versus you know either a short stem or a traditional stem? Yeah, I, uh, it's important to get a sense of the the height of the lesser tuberosity. So um, I will kind of take a second to, you know, outline the base of the bicipital groove and then uh, below the surgical neck with my cautery, and then I'll kind of palpate it and get a sense for the how big it is, you know, and they do vary in size. Some patients have bigger lesser tuberosities than others. Uh, and then I use a broad curved osteotome, and I start in the base of the bicipital groove and uh, if you have a large muscular patient, which is pretty common in an anatomic total shoulder, you know, especially if you've got a male patient, it really helps to internally rotate the arm. And I'll sometimes take it out of, out of the arm holder so I can really internally rotate it. And that way, you know, you want to drop your hand with the osteotome so that you don't go too deep into the humerus, you know, so that you take a thin, a thin slice of the tuberosity. So really internally rotating the arm will uh, move the tuberosity away from the, the deltoid, which can, you know, force your hand and force that osteotome too deep. So that's, I think, great advice. Certainly that, um, I think that that has been a barrier for a small population for the transition to stemless. Certainly, I know it was a some significant concern early on that I think a lot of people have overcome. I want to chat, you know, we've we've talked a lot about stemless Currently on the U.S. market, there are only stemless anatomics. There are, I think at this point, one ongoing IDE and one IED about to start for stemless reverses. Certainly, there's a major regulatory burden that's therefore to be overcome. But in the next few years, there will likely be stemless reverses on the market in the U.S. So I wanted to chat about specific concerns for stemless reverses. Do we need these implants to be different? Are there concerns about this working as well as stemless anatomic? What do you think, Dr. Leiter? I think they're going to be fine. Uh, I haven't done any stemless reverses personally. Uh, I, I'm anxious to start doing them. If you look at the European experience, they do quite well. We actually, uh, our group at Beaumont did a systematic review of the stemless reverse total shoulder literature we just published last year. And you know, at this time, there's not many studies, but uh, there are uh, a handful of studies from Europe you know, and if you add up all the patients, there's 400 and something that have been reported on. Uh, the clinical outcomes are fine. You know, they're as good as using a stem reverse implant. And similar to the experience with the anatomic uh, stemless implants, the results of a stemless reverse implant in terms of humeral complications are about the same. So there's no increased incidence of um, osteolysis or loosening or, um, you know, failure related to humeral fixation. So I think they're going to be fine. I've been very impressed with the modern 
demos implants that we have, every time I do one on a on an anatomic total shoulder, I, I think to myself, man, I can't wait to do these on reverses because the fixation is so good. Um, I, I, I don't really have any reservations uh, to start doing those. What are your thoughts, Dr. Sperling? Um, do you have any reservations or you have any concerns about stemless reverses? Is this something you think is coming soon or we're going to have problems with this? No, I agree with Mike. You know, I'm encouraged by it. When I speak to my friends in Europe that have been doing this for a while, I, I think it's exactly what Mike said. I think the outcomes have been very good. I had a case today where I had a patient I was revising who had a uh, plate in for post-traumatic arthritis and cup insufficiency. And I mean, boy, it would have been so nice just to take out the top three screws and put a stemless implant in there for reverse. And, you know, I think, I think that time will definitely come. And I agree with Mike. When it does get here, I think it'll be very similar to what we've seen on the anatomic side. It will likely uh, be the go-to implant that we'll eventually use for reverse as well. As we get toward the end of this podcast, because you guys have been so terrific covering, honestly, every component of, of these components, uh, what does the future hold for the humeral component for both anatomic and reverse? Are we moving as, as a field to all stemless all the time, or will there always be a place for a stemmed component here and now? Um, what do you think, Dr. Sperling? It's a great question, Rachel, and I think my sense is that we really are heading towards uh, stemless. I think that it's, it's really being proven out now in terms of the studies, both on anatomic and what we're seeing in Europe on reverse that it becomes a really good solution for patients, particularly when we think about what would the next operation be down the line for revision surgery. So the opportunity for bone preservation, ease of revision, uh, and also again, facilitating the transition to outpatient arthroplasty. There are a number of reasons to think why this is gonna continue to expand, not only in anatomic, but in the future for reverse as well. Dr. Ryder, what do you think? Is there is there going to be a role to have a backup tray whenever you're doing, you know, an anatomic or in the future reverse and you're planning on using a stemless, but should we always have some sort of stemmed component available or, or are we moving to an all stemless future? So um, I, I agree totally with John that stemless is going to be the way of the future for anatomic and reverse. Uh, however, we will always have a need from time to time for a stemmed implant. So you know, you can uh, do all the pre-op planning in the world and scrutinize x-rays and think, you know, this is going to be great for stemless. We're all set to go. And then in the operating room, you may find that the, the, the bone quality is not good enough for stem, a stemless implant. So it doesn't happen often, but it does. You know, I'd say in the last, uh, you know, two or three years, I've had one or two cases um, where we made the humeral neck cut and it looks good, and then you kind of kind of push on it, and your thumb like falls through into wet um, yellow marrow fat, you know, where there's just no bone uh, below the humeral neck cut. And in that situation, you have, I mean, I guess you could try to cement a stemless implant, but that's, you know, the, the best option would be to use a stemmed implant. So I think, you know, unless you have a day in the OR where you've got a bunch of young males where the chance of that happening is about zero. But if you have, you know, the average uh, degenerative shoulder practice where you've got some uh, older folks, especially older females, I think you really need to have a stem implant available or else you could get yourself into a situation where, uh, you know, you're not going to have 
staple fixation. Again, that's exceedingly rare, but it does happen. Yep, well stated, Mike. I agree. I want to thank both of you for coming on. I mean, this has been a real tour de force discussing the ins and outs of, you know, the future of the humoral component and what direction in which we're heading. It's been really refreshing to hear both of you talk so so honestly about your experiences and I know both of you have such have such a wealth of experience with shoulder arthroplasty. So this has been great. I really appreciate your time. I think listeners are going to love this. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Rachel. I appreciate it. And John, uh, as always, I, I thoroughly enjoyed hearing you and learned a lot, as I do every time. Uh, so, so thanks very much. My pleasure to be here. Rachel and uh, Pete, thanks so much for the chance to be here. And Mike, as always, really enjoyed chatting about shoulder arthroplasty with you and uh, really enjoyed the discussion tonight. Thanks so much. And I'll echo Pete. I want to thank both of you for taking the time to spend with us and with our listeners. This was truly very educational and I really enjoyed it myself. I know our listeners will. That is all the time we have for today's podcast. Again, we want to thank our guests so much for spending the time with us. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.